that's the barrier that we're now breaking, that people are consciously approaching subtitling as an essential part of their entertainment strategies. Welcome to SlaterPod, everyone. Today, we're really excited to have David Orrego Carmona on the podcast. So David's an assistant professor in translation at the University of Warwick and a great Twitter follow. So go to Twitter and hit uh, the follow button at, at Torrego with two R's. David, uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. Absolutely. So where does this podcast find you today? What country, what city? I'm in the UK. I'm in Birmingham, still living in Birmingham. Uh, so yeah, the weather is not great, but here we are. Swings around the corner, so <laughs> uh, at least in that part, in the part of the world that uh, that we're recording this in, right? Uh, if you go south, then uh, yeah, I guess winter is around the corner. So first, tell us uh, a little bit more about your background. Like, how did you find your way into translation studies, and in particular, like audiovisual translation, subtitling, and language tech that you uh, you focus on? Sure. So I studied translation in Colombia. And basically, I wanted to travel. That was my main reason to, to study languages. And I had two options, either uh, language teaching, and I wasn't too keen on that, or translation. So I decided to go for translation. But I didn't have any courses or um, modules on audiovisual translation or subtitling at all, because at the time, the industry in Colombia was very underdeveloped in a way. Uh, so we started working with some friends as part of our research group, and we kind of self-trained ourselves to to become subtitlers and to go deeper into audiovisual translation in general. And that's where it all started. I did have training on translation technologies and it was really useful. It really helped me, especially in my first in-house translator job. I think it was, um, uh, I was very happy to implement a lot of what I learned at the time. So I have been maintaining both areas in a way throughout my career. And lately because of all these changes, they have been converging quite a lot, and I'm very happy to to place myself in that that uh, intersection. Okay, can we just step back for a second? You said you self, like you self-formed that group and you self-taught in that group, or how, just tell me a bit more about that. That sounds super intriguing. Yeah, so uh, there was this research group on uh, translation studies, and then we created like a study group on audiovisual translation. Uh, there's actually a paper that came out from that, just exploring the a situation of audiovisual translation in Colombia at the time. So we did some interviews and we talked to people who were like starting to do things on audiovisual translation. Uh, now it's very different. Now people actually study uh, technologies and subtitling in the program, but it was really, for, for us, it was really us working and teaching ourselves with uh, some books that we found on subtitling and audiovisual translation and having discussions, running like small experiments, comparing subtitles. Uh, subtitling for a film club as well. Uh, so yeah, we're just by ourselves. Interesting. So now you're at the University of Warwick. So tell me a bit more about the program. And then also I want to know, what's the typical profile of a student who joins your program, your current program? But maybe first a bit more about the program and then like what what's the profile of the student who joins? Sure. So I joined Warwick recently. I joined in September and it was like... Um, a, a conscious decision of the university to bring in someone to integrate audiovisual translation and translation technologies. The program as such is a very uh, like traditional UK program at the moment, integrating translation and cultural studies within a language department. 
So it's different from other institutions in that sense. So at undergraduate level, we are right now developing a new pathway in translational studies to offer our students the possibility to strengthen those links with those direct links with the language industries. So I'm actually developing some of these programs. At the undergraduate level, we mostly have UK students. So that's uh, British students with European languages. So we teach French, German, Spanish, and Italian at the undergraduate level. Then the master's is different. In the master's, traditionally, the focus has been on translation, cultures, and research. That's intersection. So really training people in those areas. But now we're actually trying to diversify our portfolio. So we are developing a suite of modules on translation technologies, uh, audiovisual translation, to kind of cater for this industry, uh, for, the, for the industry and for those students who want to study translation and cultures, but also have this direct link with the, with the industry. And in terms of the profile, yeah, like I was, I'm just always curious, like in 2023, what type of student joins a translation pro, uh, program? In your case, maybe, I don't know, is it related to the whole streaming boom or, you know, when you go into subtitling or just, just curious about the profile? Sure. So the students for the master's is mostly, uh, we have mostly Chinese students and then some European students. And they are interested in, in our case, literary translation, but they, the module I just uh, launched on subtitling was is one of the most popular ones. Uh, actually, we have most of our students actually taking that module. So we are seeing that they are the students are also becoming more and more aware of this, the relevance of audiovisual translation and the possibilities that they have to work with it. So we want to offer uh, those areas uh, or those possibilities. Our students right now are mostly students with a background in languages, and I think that's that's also in a sense a a reflection of the type of traditional program that we have right now. Got it. Interesting. So if I get this right, your PhD was on the reception of non-professional subtitles using eye tracking. Fascinating, if I get this right. So tell us a bit more about that and some of the key findings and also how has your uh, research evolved since then? What other kind of topics are you are you researching? Sure. So it was... Uh, on the reception of non-professional subtitling because I wanted to, uh, at the time there was still little research on non-professional subtitling or fan subbing, as some people might be more familiar with that term. And my idea was to look at the ecosystem of non-professional subtitling to understand how the communities producing the subtitles come to be and what mechanisms they use for the production and how the users of the subtitles react to them and how much information they gather and how happy they are with the subtitles. So on the one hand, I think I learned a lot from this study about how technology influences these, the emergence of these communities and how these communities actually make a very proficient use of technologies and innovate a lot to create their own develop their own production processes. And then on the reception side, I was talking to, to viewers to see how they use subtitles. And then I was using eye tracking to see whether there's any difference uh, in reading behaviors when they are reading professional subtitles or non-professional subtitles. Uh, at the time, this was in 2013, 2015. So it was just the beginning of this uh, really grow of the streaming uh, services and Netflix and all that. So it was very interesting to see at the time how people were more conscious about the use of dubbing and subtitles 
Uh, so they were basically developing a more conscious approach to how to engage with these different modalities. So people would say, oh, well, if I really want to relax, this was in Spain, by the way. So a traditionally dubbing country. So these people would say, if I really want to relax, if I don't want to make any additional efforts, then I just use uh, the dubbed version. Uh, or if I want to learn the language or to kind of go more into detail with the, with the product or be more focused on the product, then I use the subtitle. So that was one of the findings. Uh, it was also interesting to see that people were, at the time, aware of differences between these subtitles. So they knew that the subtitles that they were accessing through these platforms were not the same as the professional subtitles they would normally get uh, on a DVD or at the cinema. And they were, they understood or they adjusted their demands to these subtitles differently as well. And that was that more conscious approach to consumption was very interesting. And I think we're seeing more and more of that. And we'll, we'll get to that in the conversation. And from a, the eye tracking data, I actually found that the differences depending on the type of subtitling were not that relevant, really. People were reading them in the same way. But there were other things that were uh, really triggering uh, more attention, such as misspellings or low frequency words. And these are some of the things we're studying now, how different variables affect uh, the engagement of the, of the viewers and reading behavior when it comes to subtitling. Is that still a big thing, fan subbing or fan subs? Or has that maybe now with technology being so prevalent, it's harder to say which is fan? Just generally, is it still a big thing, I guess? It's changing a lot again because it went from being this very niche thing in the 90s and the, the beginning of the, the century to then becoming really a huge thing uh, 10 years ago. And now it's kind of dying out, I think, at least the market for like American TV series or films because now we have all this subtitled straight away uh, by the producer. So what many... Gonna, what many groups are doing is just ripping the subtitles and redistributing them. There are still hardcore communities that create different subtitles and the different types of subtitles. And these are mostly communities uh, that are really committed, really the hardcore fans who want to engage with the content differently. So learn more about the source culture or really help with the distribution of like, underground products. But I think... The, their activities are definitely being are reducing due to all these changes in the in the market. Those changes have been, I mean, past five years. Personally, of course, I'm you know watching Netflix, got Disney Plus, Apple, etc. Um, recently, I guess past 12, 18 months, we've had some kind of hit shows like like Squid Games coming in from Korea that the whole world watched, or eighteen ninety nine, where like people were speaking. A lot of different languages, which probably made it a little harder to dub, or at least it made it kind of kind of lost the point if you dubbed it. And and so do these shows, these kind of multilingual hit shows, do they have they changed the perception of subtitling in, in academia in the industry? Or like are you seeing any changes emanating from from those types of titles? Yes, absolutely. And the thing is, people are talking more about subtitling and translation. I think that's one of the main uh, takeaways from us from, for all these changes. Netflix has been experimenting with this for a while. There was this 1899 is a clear example, but there was Sense8 before. There was an attempt for, to bring characters with different languages and different backgrounds into the same product and then use 
translation to kind of communicate and integrate translation as an essential part of that product, which is the same case for 1899. And people are responding well to that, I think. And partly because of these products in particular, but also, as you mentioned, a squid game or dark, which are products that are understood as foreign products and force people to access them through subtitling. And I think that's the barrier that we're now breaking, that people are consciously approaching subtitling as an essential part of their, their entertainment strategies. And I think this has also had an impact on how they see subtitling, because in the case of Squid Game or Dark, the product by default is understood as a foreign product. So people understand that what they're watching is a farther removed to them in relation to them in comparison to whatever they're watching initially. And that challenges some of the ideas that we have in, in translation studies about this invisibility of the subtitles. I think because of all these changes, people are more uh, willing to understand that subtitles need to be there and that they are part of the product. And that definitely changes the way how we engage and produce subtitles. Something interesting here uh, uh, that we should take into consideration is that people are using more intralingual subtitles, so subtitles in the same language. There was a recent poll in the UK, for instance, and I think the stats say that something like two thirds of the users between 18 and 24 years in the UK use subtitles in English for English products. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I mean, the, the reach of the, of the subtitling industry in that sense uh, is incredible. And then the, the next uh, group, I think, was between 25 and 50. It's about one third of the population. So we can see that this is definitely being driven by uh, younger audiences. What's interesting here is that the subtitles that they're using are the subtitles uh, that cater for the different hard of hearing audiences. So they're designed in a different way. And then we have the clash that we found with the Squid Game uh, debate that, oh, the subtitles are not saying the same as the original. Well, if the subtitles prefer for a different audience, they cater for the needs of that audience in particular. So if a hearing if a hearing viewer use closed captions, they will have the access to both the source and the target uh, translation in the same play space, and they will be able to contrast it. Uh, but then they were not the ideal viewer for that product. So that creates or gives them a different way to assess the product. And then uh, customer satisfaction here could suffer because, well, they're using a product that is not intended to them. And uh, for us, I think the question is, how do we try to balance those needs? And how do we try to create subtitles that are open subtitles for the whole population and that cater for everyone? And I think that's going to be one of the interesting challenges uh, that we have uh, in the future. Really tough, though. Right, because I mean, for me, I, I I love subtitles. I watch almost all of my content. I mean, I watch it in English, right? So I don't watch the dubbed version, but I always have the subtitles on. But I don't need the dog barks in a distance type of, you know, or the those, I'm not sure what the technical term is. So if I had a choice between kind of closed captions or for the harder hearing and like a, just a clean subtitle for, you know, uh, just because I sometimes, I just like to read it and be sure that I understand all the dialogue. I would totally do that. I'm sure I'm not alone. And as you just pointed out that with, uh, you know, younger folks, a lot of people would kind of consciously turn on the subtitles. So do you think it's going to, you, you say you want to have a subtitle that works for both, but maybe just have both options? 
Yeah, then you can start offering options. But then do we offer the same option to the 25-year-old that we offer to the 50-year-old? And then that's, that becomes part of the problem because how do we classify these people? And we're also, in particular with intralingual subtitling, we have the problem that people have the capacity to access both. We are conducting a research project right now and we're interviewing people about their, sub, their, their use of subtitles. And they say, well, if I can access the, the source language, then I will compare it. But if I'm watching something in Korean or in Russian, then I'm happy to just follow the subtitles and assume that they are fine. So we are in this situation where language knowledge is actually uh, becoming an issue for people to enjoy the content because they automatically will compare the subtitles uh, or will automatically try to use whatever knowledge they have to assess the quality. While if they don't know anything, then they are happy to go along and then just believe, uh, fully trust the subtitles. Uh, so this, this classification of viewers, I think, is going to be one of the challenges that we have. What do we want to offer people and uh, how, do people, how will people react to whatever we, we have to offer? It's very hard if I don't have subtitles. Just yesterday, I, wa uh, I watched Chris Rock's new special and I got about halfway in. And because it was, I think it was live taped, they didn't actually have, I mean, there were no subtitles because I think it just came out a couple of days ago. Nobody actually wrote the subtitles yet. So it was like, I think it was AI captions and it was always very slow. So you couldn't really follow it. So I turned it off and I'm like, yeah, it's, you know, it's comedy. He speaks very slowly, very deliberately. But I, sometimes I'm like, I'm missing my subtitles. Anyway, you see, I'm a fan. Um, let's go to uh, dubs versus subs, uh, the big debate. And you mentioned Spain before. And, you know, you said in Spain, people, if they want to relax, they would turn on the dubs. If they kind of want to, you know, have the original, they, they have the, the subs on. I grew up um, on, on dub as well as uh, in Switzerland. A lot of German um, content, of course, from Germany. And they, they, they dub even in the cinema, which they don't do here in, in Switzerland. Um, so I'm kind of used to dubs, but I transitioned into subs. So what's your stance, I guess, if there is a stance to be had or what's the, what's the debate there currently? Yeah, well, I think we're never going to get rid of this one because people will always be uh, trying to assess which one is better, trying to find a, an answer. And I, straightforward answer is there's no answer because uh, there are many factors that affect the way how you engage with content and familiarity and habituation is a huge one. So obviously... Traditionally, we used to divide the countries like a dubbing country or a subtitling country, but that doesn't apply anymore either because with Netflix and all these platforms, you can access many different resources. I mean, you have the choice. We were cho talking about choice before. You do have more choices. Uh, so I think we are going to get to a point where people just make an informed decision amongst the offers that they, they offer that they have, uh, what they offered in general. Um, but in terms of translation, both modes or all modes of translation are efficient and can convey meaning. It's a matter of how willing the users are to engage with these with these forms of translation. I think. Just another brief example. I know people don't join this for my takes, but um, I the last week I watched with the kids. I watched a show that was uh, about kind of the healthcare system with like they followed some uh, nurses around. And it was dubbed into Swiss German because it was recorded in the in the French speaking part of Switzerland. It was it was lip synced up into Swiss German, which I've never seen before. That was the first time in my life I saw anything dubbed into Swiss German, which is kind of a weird Germanic dialect, like Southern Germanic dialect. 
uh, and it was so um, it was really easy to follow. I liked it a lot, actually more than like like standard German dub content, maybe because it was even closer to like home, uh, and it was really well done. So I guess my point here is that um, yeah, if it it is an emotional thing for me. It kind of got really, uh, it, was, it was very close, right? And it was very well done. So it, I kind of lost, it's like the Spanish example you mentioned. Like I, there was zero effort for me. I could just kind of consume it. Uh, so yeah, there's a place for dubs, even for, I guess, a dubbing critic like me. And we are seeing changes like this, if I may add something. In Latin America, for instance, until 2010, and most paid TV channels would have subtitled versions because not many people had access to these channels, so their community was very small. Their community of users was very small. As they started to expand in Latin America to reach more, more homes, then what they did was dubbing all the content. So suddenly, series that used to be available only with subtitles were dubbed. And right now, it's harder to find subtitles on these TV channels and at the cinema in Latin America than it is to find uh, dubbed versions. So for those people, the dubbing is actually the better alternative or they are more interested in accessing that and companies understood that and decided to invest more. So I think that there will be, we will continue to have both or different forms in uh, Eastern Europe. We have voiceover and some communities enjoy the voiceover for, for films, exactly. I don't get that one. That one's weird. The same person, but yeah. Yes. Uh, no emotion in some cases. All right, let's talk about a bit about machine translation. You recently published a, a, a long paper in the Revista Tradumatica, I think it's called, uh, uh, about uh, the use of machine translation among non-professional translators. Can you just share kind of the top two, three, four takeaways from, from that paper for, for us? Sure. I think it was interesting to see, again, the, how language knowledge affects the way how you engage with these resources. Uh, many of the respondents to the to survey the, the article is about or I'm trying to bring together the views of different respondents about how they use machine translation in different professions, not just uh, or apart from translation. And what I found was that people are make a conscious use of machine translation and try try to uh, overcome their own language barriers or the, their basic level of proficiency by implementing machine translation in a in a more informed and educated way, in a way. So it's not just randomly approaching machine translation and assuming that the outcome is going to be perfect, but understanding that they will need to do or engage with the text. So that was interesting. Uh, something interesting that I found also was that people were kind of pre-editing themselves. So they understood that some language constructions in Spanish or Portuguese would be more cumbersome, like relative clauses and all this. So they were writing originals with simpler sentences so that it was easy, it would be easier for the machine to, to produce a better translation. So that, that idea that people are reassessing their own production based on what the system will do later on, I think that was quite interesting in terms of how human and machine cooperate. Uh, but I think the, the main takeaway from me is that this type of new tools, and now we chat GPT and being chat, what we're seeing is that the systems require for people to have a high understanding of how the systems work in order to access and assess the information that they get. And I think that's going to be the challenge. How 
to the systems or how are the systems implemented because the systems are more and more designed to provide a frictionless experience. So instead of going through all the list of possible answers that you get in Google, uh, on Google search, you go to ChatGPT and you get one answer. So once you have one answer, you don't have that opportunity to engage and challenge or that invitation to engage and challenge and compare different outputs. Being chat is a little bit different in that sense, but then we end up in a situation where the, the way how the systems work kind of predefine uh, the outcome that you're going to have as a, as a user, and you might not be aware of that. And I think that's happening with machine translation and it's easy to see how that's going how, how that can be transferred to this broader discussion that we're having about AI in society in general. When you talk to maybe former graduates or people that are just entering uh, kind of the industry after having graduated, like what do you see the impact of all this automation, you know, expert in the loop translation on kind of the day-to-day -day working conditions of, of professional translators? What are you hearing from some former graduates? I've been teaching at master's level for five or six years. So my graduates are relatively uh, recent to the industry, but they, most of the people I've trained, they have gone on to become project managers and then freelance translators after that. And they, or many of them implement technologies to their own benefit. They really understand that by implementing these technologies early, they will have more opportunities to get, to get jobs and to choose the type of jobs that they want to do. So I think at least amongst this younger generation of professionals, there's a more positive attitude towards what's happening. I'm also talking about the UK, and I think that's a very different market in terms of how it's configured, it's really understood as, a, as an industry, and people uh, look at it from a very, in a very um, proactive way. I mean, I think uh, that we are we as a society or as a part of the sector, we are very proactive in that sense. And that's good uh, for the changes that I'm seeing. Now, there is very different from when we talk about other people or a general attitude towards MT. It's been around for a while. So I think there is a whole cohort and generation that, that should have a positive attitude. I'm glad to hear that. Um, let's talk about the different platforms. You spoke before about more kind of the feature that, you know, Netflix, the big hit shows, um, how much is, you know, the YouTube subtitle, the TikTok caption, uh, relevant to what you do? Is that part of the kind of the conversation or is it mostly around, you know, big budget productions? It is part of the conversation. And I, well, the module I designed recently on subtitling takes into account the situation in the industry because the in my view, the big grow in terms of content is going to be this type of channel. So YouTube, TikTok, Instagram. So it's important to take into account, I think, the basic principles that subtitling requires and then discuss with students how these are going to be affected to or affected by the requirements of different media. So what we do and what I try to embed in my training is translation in general as problem solving. So you have the situation, you have... Uh, less space to integrate text, but people are more engaged. So you have your phone in your hand, you can easily, all your attention is there. So you can be more, um, or, or, or the, the timing of the subtitle, the synchronization can be different. You can have a little bit more text. Uh, and I try to integrate that into my teaching to show students that the principle remains the same and you can, 
you just need to ask the right questions. And I try to equip them with the tools to think about that situation and asking the right questions to try to come up with uh, solutions for those situations. What does a professional think about this? Like, I think it's mostly on TikTok or maybe some YouTube shorts or reels or whatever it's called. Like these like one or two word <laughs> captions or subtitles where you like just literally one word, but like super fast. I don't know what the appropriate term there would be, but I find it sometimes a little too much that it's just one word. Give me at least two or three. Yes, I think that you, you have very little time to actually consolidate whatever you're reading. And I think that's actually detrimental for comprehension. It would be better to have smaller words on the screen. And that, that's my view. And that's, I think, what I've seen based on some my tracking research. I think there was actually a study to test this one word at a time uh, type of information on smartwatches. And people cannot really consolidate the information. So it's hard to actually understand whatever you're reading because the context is just too minimal. But since this is kind of happening, I guess, not because somebody likes to do it, but because it's more, it's get, it gets more views or likes or whatever, retweets. Uh, why do you think this has, why this has happened at all? I mean, what may, is it more viral? Is it more kind of attention grabbing or is it literally the 10 seconds thing and nobody's consuming this more than like 20 or 30 seconds? Or why do you think this kind of evolved at all? These like one word thingies. I think it's a strategy as a, an a to use the subtitles as attention grabbers for the product rather than the content as such. I think it's a way of engaging with the viewer because think about everything you watch on Instagram and how much you actually remember from that. It's very little. So the idea is to make sure that you have your the consumer in front of that screen for those 10 seconds and then they will move on. And I think that's that's the main point. Some of those will go viral, but I think that's related to the the wider context of media consumption rather than the subtitles as such. Um, and also they look flashy and they look more interesting. I think they make products more interesting. And that's something that we are discussing now, how this um, integrated subtitles or creative subtitles so actually also help with the engagement of viewers. All right, let's talk about ChatGPT. Um... Like in, in academia, I guess you have a few more challenges than us in the industry side, because I don't know, like students coming in, hey, here's my essay. <laughs> it was written by ChatGPT. Tell me, like on the first, this no language industry at all, but like, like how does that, how, do, how is that being perceived by people in, at universities that, you know, have to grade papers and have to, uh, you know, read essays and, and kind of content from, from students and then. Yeah, on the on the industry side, are there some early kind of applications you're seeing out there in subtitling or or not yet? Okay, so university first, yes, it's been very, very problematic because the having the possibility or giving students the possibility to just write an essay in a couple of minutes uh, without really engaging with the content is very I mean makes it really difficult for us to do our jobs. And the universities have invested a lot on academic integrity programs and plagiarism and all this. And suddenly from a day to another, that was all gone. And then we need to focus on this new problem. So there are issues at different levels here. And I think the assessment issue is the one that we are more interested in right now because it's something new and we need to assess how to integrate it. And I think one of the main problems here is the social responsibility of this type of technologies. Think about other university committees that have been created since December to address the issues of ChatGPT and how are we going to 
try to identify this. And if we do identify this, to bring forward the case for plagiarism with a, with a, in a situation like this takes huge amount of manpower. So it's going to be a couple of academics involved. Yes. So I think the, the main problem with that part is that suddenly we have this tool and then it's on the, it's, it, it becomes a societal problem. Who's going to tackle the issues that uh, are generated by this? In the short term, I think we need to develop new uh, modes of assessment that integrate. Uh, I, I'm a believer that we need to integrate this into our forms of assessment. So we try to develop um, types of assessment that in which students can use uh, and critically use these tools and then reflect on their practices, develop different projects over time. So that might require more oversight and additional work for us. But at the same time, I think the integration of ChatGPT can help us to th think or rethink teaching in general, because we are in a situation where we rely on assessment as the only method to evaluate our students. And that happens at the end of the module. So we don't really get the opportunity to see how the feedback we provide uh, helps students improve. So we could also use ChatGPT or this type of resources to try to get you know, to give students additional feedback or additional sources uh, for them to access feedback themselves and improve their work. So I think there are opportunities there as well to rethink teaching more broadly. And then in the long term, also considering how our programs in general can integrate the ChatGPT or this type of resources in more or embed them more thoroughly in training because it's going to be the reality. This system is going to be integrated into word processors and uh, email and all this. The, I think it's important here to develop though, to, to consider how we're going to develop the basic skills because, and that's not only a problem for academia, but for post-editing in general. If we are all expected to post-edit, yes, I can train post-editors now, but how to ensure that they are good translators before they become post-editors? How do we create those conditions under which students still have the time to become good uh, translators before they become post-editors? Because the skills needed are related, but are not the same. And you need to be especially thinking about considering neural machine translation, you need to be a really good translator to identify the bigger problems in machine translation systems. Yeah, that's what I always say. I say basically, uh, you know, when we talk to investors, et cetera, that, that are looking at the industry, I always say like at this point, you need very good translators to be able to kind of, you know, add that additional expert layer on top of a good, well-trained machine translation. So. I think the low-hanging fruits are long gone, and everybody who's still doing this uh, is, is a very highly trained professional. Um, let's talk about another uh, OpenAI product, uh, Whisper, uh, you know, in various shapes of open sourcing, I guess. Uh, they just released an API. Um, are you seeing this at all in subtitling or live captioning at the moment? Is it relevant? Are you looking at this? Because it's, it's, it's quite good. It is, and I, I think it's, very relevant. It's very important for us to keep an eye on that, both for the consequences or the impact on training, but also the professional landscape in general. Because so, re-speaking or the the ability to or the the need to re-speak the product in order to create live subtitles developed over the last ten years or so and became quite the standard to create live subtitles. But then, if 
systems like Whisper become more widely available. And now that we have the API as well, it's going to be integrated in all types of platforms and, and apps. We need to reassess whether there is still a need to train re-speakers, uh, for instance. Is there a market for this or does it make more sense to use a system and then we're going to train post editors for the output of systems like Whisper? So we definitely need to keep an eye on that. Um, and I think these systems as well, uh, the new ChatGPT or Whisper will also change radically the way how we assess those outputs because one of the issues that we are, we've been having, for instance, having problems with rephrasing. So in subtitling, you need to condensate information. But these systems, if you combine them, they can actually help, or my assumption is that they could help quite a lot in these processes. So even those skills that we think were essentially human skills can actually be uh, automated to some extent thanks to these activities. And that will change the professional landscape and the training landscape for sure. In what way do you think translators, subtitlers, uh, do you need have some basic coding skills in 2023? Like, are you at Warwick, are you teaching, are you offering like a Python module, kind of, you know, Python 101, or is it, is it kind of a mandatory part of the curriculum, or what are your thoughts around that? We don't offer it, and I'm still in two minds about this one. I think uh, knowing Python or programming skills uh, would be an asset to some translators. And I think that's, or some language professionals, let's talk about language professionals in general, because we train multifaceted professionals that will occupy different spaces in the, in the at different companies or in the market. I think there are actually skills which are more relevant to them than coding, because we have teams developing these tools, but we do need to provide our students with some understanding of how it works. Because I think the main problem is not so much to be able to do the task yourself, but to communicate with different professionals who can enter and produce the resources that are going to be used by translators. At the same time, we are integrating, or when, when you think about the translation curriculum, you need to think about so many different aspects that could be or play a role in the professional life of a translator. Think about multilingual copywriting, SEO, project management, or something as basic as negotiation skills. I would actually put those higher than coding right now. Um, so I, I don't think everyone should be uh, or should know Python. I think it could be an asset to some, but I think there, there are many opportunities for language professionals to evolve in different ways. I think the main recommendation for me would be to for for these students to check and try different things and then specialize in different areas and choose or in an area that they really feel passionate about because I don't think everyone uh, will like to be um, a programmer. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think it's it's maybe even overloading it a little bit if it's compulsory because uh, it's hard enough to become really good at two or three or four languages, right? And it, these, as these systems get better and better because of people who know Python and love it uh, or other, other programming languages, the language professional needs to get better and better and better to still kind of add that layer on top. So, uh, you know, I guess these, there's only so much time you have during a, an MA or, or a BA. All right, let's talk about a bit about your roadmap. What's what's on the roadmap for this year? Research project, collaborations in the work. What's what's planned in 2023 and beyond? Yeah, so I'm working on 
On a night tracking project right now, we are working with a team in Norwich, in Warsaw and Sydney, and we are assessing subtitle reading. So we're trying to isolate different variables that affect the subtitle, uh, the subtitle reading process to understand how people watch subtitles and to understand how we need to coordinate these variables. Because what we found is that there's a lot of, or there, in, in subtitling, there's a fair amount of uh, eye tracking research, but we know very little about the foundation of research of subtitling, or a lot of it was done in the 80s. So we're trying to revisit this to assess how we can offer better subtitles for the audiences that we have right now. So that's one of the things I'm doing. And I'm also doing a project on machine translation as used by local authorities, NGOs, and charities in the region, in the Midlands, in the UK, to see how these communities that are serving wider portions of the population use and implement machine translation and whether there's a way to develop policies or uh, white papers that can help them better integrate, better assess and integrate these resources to benefit the community. Great. Good luck with that. And thanks so much for joining us today, David. It was a pleasure having you on. Thank you.